Crosstalk, the unintentional transfer of signals between communication channels, a casual conversation. Hello world, this is Video Game Crosstalk, the bi-weekly podcast of gamers talking about tech, science, life, and whatever else comes to mind. I'm your host, Anthony DeRossi, and with me this week, Jonathan Muckle. John, what's going on, buddy? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, awesome. Thank you. Thanks to you for accepting this, this episode 001 of Video Game Crosstalk, the inaugural episode hey, I'm of this, whatever this happens to be. So... John, uh, I've invited you. Uh, you're a personal friend of mine. You're a cool dude. And you've got a lot of pretty awesome stuff going on. Uh, so the first thing is, how should I formally address you? Should I address you as Professor Jonathan Muckle? Should I address you as Dr. Jonathan Muckle? Well, I mean, Anthony, we're, we're good friends. I think John is, is just fine. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, John here is um, actually a PhD. Would the proper terminology to be to say that someone is a PhD or has a PhD? I think that would be has a PhD. Okay, so John Muckle actually has a PhD, and why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, one thing about uh, PhDs is they like to talk about their research a little, a little too much. <laughs> well, uh, we got some time to fill, so go ahead, uh, take it off. Yeah, I guess I could. I could probably the best way to uh, talk about my work is to kind of give a little bit of a, a timeline of how I got into it in a way. And I, and, all right, sounds good. Yeah, as, as I finished up at uh, St. Lawrence University, I was you know nerd at heart. I did uh, computer science and math and. I decided I wanted to go an engineering program, and I, I had a good opportunity to go just up the river here a little bit from where we are now in Albany. I was over at uh, RPI, uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and uh, started working with a professor there uh, when I started doing some grad work there, and, and they did some pretty interesting work, which is, um, at the time, it was actually a military project called Geostar. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. And uh, Geostar was funded for uh, funded a variety of different projects amongst both private sector companies as well as a lot of different universities. Okay. The prim- yeah, primary focus was basically to be able to um, take terrain data, geospatial data, and believe it or not, that's it's a really hard problem to have really accurate elevation maps. And so you can think about it in this way: if you're in the military and you're trying to move some troops around. Uh, it's really important to know if you're approaching basically a sharp cliff or a gradual slope, right? Okay. And that data is, takes up a tremendous amount of satellites as they're sensing the data and sensing the, the world, the terrain. Uh, it takes up a dramatic amount of storage, right, which is expensive to store. It's expensive to transmit. It's, it's uh, uh, tough to run algorithms on it, right, to be able to actually process it. So that was that's the project, and what I did is looked at um, ways in which water flows over the terrain and used some of that information about where rivers are, where ridges are, to be able to kind of exploit that information to be able to kind of compress that data. So it was a, it, some work on compression algorithms, 
Um, a little while later than that, I had a, a good opportunity to work uh, close by in this community work with GE Research, an electric research center. And um, th- as over time, I people in the in the lab there were were working on some different types of geospatial technology, and uh, in particular, they're monitoring uh, a lot of trucks. Right, so they have this uh, trucks that are equipped with uh, GPS sensors. Uh, the sensors track uh, where the trucks are. There's also sensors about, is the door open? Is the truck idling? Is there cargo in the back? And you can kind of think of all different types of sensors you might want to know for being able to monitor a supply chain. And what I tried to do through my research is combine that work I was doing at, at RPI on that Geostar project with some applications that I learned about working at General Electric to say, how can we compress this geospatial data this GPS data that's being calculated by all these trucks driving around, right? And imagine if you've got 100,000 vehicles um, traveling around all day long, that the size of the data gets really quick. And if you're trying to run queries, like figure out uh, how many trucks are, you know, visited this distribution center, things like that, it could be very computationally expensive to do that. So that was Oh, absolutely. Because like you said, if you have 100 trucks going around and you have a sensor for each of these things, like, all right, for instance, like you said, is a door open? Uh, is I'm sure you can monitor the uh, the fuel tank as well, like it, how much fuel is consumed or how much fuel is left in the tank. Um, any type of engine uh, diagnostics, all sorts of things. So you have all of these different sensors and all of these different readings coming from each individual truck, multiplied by however many trucks you have going on, and you're trying to keep track of all that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot going on all at one time, all at the same time, additionally. Yeah, and you would have, especially transmitting that data over, over like, a wireless network. So at the time, this is back, I started that work in, like, 2006, and particularly back then, there it was really expensive to send a lot of data over, uh, like, a wireless network, so... And, and actually, a lot of the trucks didn't even have um, cellular capabilities. They were actually sending the data via satellite network. Oh, geez. Yeah, so if you're sending a lot of data and you're sending it and you're bouncing it off satellites, it's really expensive to send each message. So if you can compress it and you can reduce the size of that message, you can save a lot of money. So um, that's kind of so the, the heart of the work has been compression algorithms. Uh, around geospatial data, and if you've ever seen like uh, Silicon Valley, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched that on on HBO, but uh, the whole heart of that of that uh, company that's formed on that on that um, sitcom is is around uh, compression. You know, I've caught a few episodes. Um, I go to a friend's house to watch uh, Game of Thrones with a bunch of other friends. And we have ourselves like a mini book party because uh, my wife and I, we have not read the books. However, the friends that we watch the show with have read the books. So we'll go over and then it's like little book club. We're going to talk about, oh, I see how they changed this person's timeline or they didn't do this in the books or, you know, they're all over the place. But um Anyway, we'll go there, and as we're doing our little book club thing, which my wife and I were just like, eh, I don't know, we're just having fun and watching all the crazy uh, drama unfold. Uh, we have picked up a few episodes of Silicon Valley uh, because it comes on after Game of Thrones. I mean, it's an entertaining show, but no, I had no idea that um, the business that they created for that show, the fictional business, was centered around compression. That I did not know. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. I I must say, like, uh, and, and I'd... 
it is pretty funny. I have to give respect where respect is due. That that is, and I feel bad sometimes because I'm trying to like watch and listen to the show, and then like my friends are like asking me questions or my opinion on something, and I'm just like I I don't know. I was just laughing at the TV just now. Sorry about well, that. And as, as as real as the show is, like I think everybody who's like works in the tech field can watch that and kind of relate to certain aspects of it. Uh, the the one glad I'm glad that you know if you actually watch the show you watch the season finale the first season I'm just glad that in any of the uh, meetings that I've had kind of working on some of this technology for compression algorithms didn't have the same um, approach that they use I won't really go any further oh, than that but it's <laughs> I, I I did not see that but I can only imagine did it involve managers or executives having no idea what the hell the Hex and the scientists or uh, the guys we're talking about. Oh, it's uh, you'll have to, I'll let you watch it. Okay, you'll let me watch it. Yeah, because I've <laughs> um, I've worked in engineering for a f- uh, quite a few years as a technical drafter. I did some work in um, refrigeration design and a little bit of architectural layouts and stuff like that. And it's just it's painful sometimes to sit in a room with some other like sales reps or department managers, and they'll. They'll ask questions and make demands, and you just kind of look at them, and you you just think, "That's, sir, that's not mathematically possible. That's not how space works." Like uh, for architectural designs, like this one area, it doesn't have. Well, it was for a supermarket chain. Um, I don't really want to say what that supermarket chain is, just in case uh, over the air here. But uh, so working the supermarket chain and the the meat department guy will say, "Oh, we need an additional thirty six feet of linear shelving uh, in this department." And we'll look at the plans. I'll say, uh, sorry, we only have uh, 24 feet available. We're going to have to do some remerchandising for things to get everything to fit. And they'll just look at the plan for a second, and they'll think, and they'll say, how about 28 feet? Can you make 28 feet fit there? <laughs> and I'm like, that's not how math works. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't bend space to make these cases fit. I don't know what to tell you. And of course, you're like, you're the low man on the fo- on the uh, totem pole. So you're like, you look at your boss with shrugged shoulders, and I'm like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I don't know what to do. Ah, so wow, that's pretty. That's pretty wild. So, um, so what made you go from uh, computer science into engineering? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, when I was an undergrad, I, I had a good opportunity to work with a great professor. He's uh, uh, at Hardcore over at St. Lawrence University, and he okay. um, he had come from an engineering background too, kind of a cross between computer science and computer engineering. And I did a project over a summer, which was basically uh, it was much more like involving um, simulating hardware, and it exposed me to it. I thought it was, I just was fascinated by it. I, I thought it was extremely right. interesting. To, to see how software, whether it's code or like how software works, how it actually ends up running on hardware. And that kind of hardware-software interface, it was just found very interesting, and that kind of hooked me. And then when I was applying to grad schools, what I honestly did is I wasn't really sure, and I applied to a bunch of different schools, and I applied some to engineering programs, some to computer science programs, and I just okay. had options. And you ended up at RPI. Yep, yep. Okay, once again, uh, for wherever you may be listening to this podcast from, that is the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and that's in, well, Rensselaer County, which is Troy, New York. So we're up uh, the capital region of New York, which which I kind of like to uh, joke about and say, uh, yes, Albany is New York's 
other capital city. Uh, not all people from New York are from New York City itself. There's a whole other state <laughs> that's all north of Manhattan and the five boroughs. So, yes, life does exist outside of New York City. All right, so so what was your Ph.D. work on? So I was, yeah, I did my master's at RPI, and then as I was working, I ended up finishing up at the University of Albany in, in the informatics program. Okay. And I continued doing that, that work um, really related to compression algorithms for geospatial applications. I had a lot of transportation applications to it, so if you're really looking at, like, um, you know, supply chain tracking, um, mm-hmm. Now, years later, as I actually finished up and, and then joined the university, um, University at Albany, I got very interested in kind of a different area, which is um, kind of where my heart is now, which is mostly around like assisted living technologies, like basically technology that can help people with disabilities. Um, three, you know, and then as part of that, um, can involve different levels of electronic sensors, maybe 3D printing, kind of depends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of made a bit of a transition over the last uh, maybe two years into more of that, um, you know, that type of work. Awesome. So what exactly is informatics? Because that uh, seems to me like a relatively new term as far as computers is concerned. I've heard computer science. I've heard information technology or information systems or cybersecurity. But uh, informatics, what exactly is informatics? Yeah, you know, the way I look at it, and you can run into slightly different definitions depending on who you talk to, is, of course. is that you've got that it's very people-centric. So you have the underlying technology, but you care a lot about usability. So in terms of how can that technology um, interact with people, affect society. Um, so, you know, that you, you take a, it can involve for anything from user interface design, so almost like an HCI, even computer interaction approach, to, um, you know, all sorts of different technologies that can come into play. I like the assisted living technology aspect of that because it can. It's something where you're looking. If you look at it as an example, when you look at um, say assisted living technologies, that's where you can apply all sorts of different approaches, and there's a really clear benefit. Like here's who's a, this is people it's going to help people that um, part of society that that could benefit from the technology. All right, I, interesting. It's a it's kind of the definition of informatics can vary person to person and, and it actually do, also country to country because if you use that term say in Europe a lot of people will look at it and from my understanding they interpret it very much as like a computer science program but in the United States it has a bit of a different connotation to it okay and like you said it's more the interface between the computer and the user yeah is what it sounded yeah. like that's okay. a very good way to put it all right so um not too long ago, there's still some discussion about it, but uh, for the most part, the the discussion behind E3 has kind of died off a little bit. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with E3, where all the huge game announcements come come and go, and all the new hype, 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 hype. Um, Xbox has recently announced, as well as Sony, the new iterations of their consoles. And one of the things that they've been touting, especially the Xbox Scorpio, is that it's going to have amazing processing power. It's going to be a workhorse. It's going to be so awesome. It's going to be able to handle 4K uh, resolution, and it's going to tell a whopping six teraflops. What is a teraflop? 
Um, I've heard this on other podcasts um, that are more game-centric rather than the hardware or the tech is concerned, and we've all had our, we've had a lot of fun making jokes about what teraflop could be or mm. its significance. But uh, as someone who works in the computer field, uh, what for the love of God, what is a teraflop? <laughs> yeah, that's a good good question. So uh, to dissect that a bit, let's just ignore the tera for a second. Let's just look at flop. Flop. Okay. So, start start from the base. All right. So flop is stands for floating point operation, right? So that's a, a floating point operation is really like a computer science or pre-engineering term. It basically means, you know, the FL would be like the floating and OP for operation, right? So floating point operation. Okay. And what a floating point is, is that's basically a way in which they're um, referring to decimals, right? So if you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, any sort of, you know, non-integer number, so you've got uh, you know, three point one four, whatever it happens to be, um, those are pi. Good job. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so you, okay, go ahead. Those are expensive to do some sort of uh, floating point operations. They can take more CPU cycles to do math operations on them, just by the nature of of the data. Um, and so a teraflop would be standing for a trillion of those operations, right, being done okay. a second. All right, so it's, there, how that distinguishes is that there's other types of um, things that can be that are computed that are easier to kind of accelerate to make faster, um, you know, that you can just compute less CPU cycles. And, uh, you know, floating point operations are time-consuming typically, so to be able to do six teraflop, it's, it's amazing how quickly uh, that technology progresses and, and how far it's come. Yeah, see if I can find that article. Not that one. Not that one. I've got a bunch of... I would be interested to break some to know how many, how many flops like the Apollo 11 guidance computer could do, like, compared oh, to that. Geez. And I'm sure it's just a, such a puny, puny number. So that would be yeah, six right. trillion... A second is, is pretty incredible. Yeah, so I'm looking at an article from Ars Technica, and as far and I quote, as powerful as the Project Scorpio hardware is, 4K is an ambitious goal, which it really is. That's a lot. That's a lot of rendering that this is going to have to do if you're going to be doing full 4K uh, rendering while gaming. I mean, 4K video is is impressive enough, but um, that's pretty much like a flat image. If you're going to have 4K as far as rendering with a 3D environment that you can interact with, that's that's a lot of processing. Yeah. So it's an ambitious goal. While we don't know the ins and outs of the actual hardware just yet, Microsoft's E3 showcase gave us enough to make a few educated guesses, and the big one is that native 4K is going to be a stretch, at least without some sacrifices to rendering quality. Compare that 6 teraflops figure to existing graphics cards for the PC and it doesn't bode well. Oh, that's not good. AMD's R9390X pushes around 5.9 teraflops, but the, car, but the card struggles with 4K at 30 frames per second. And even the top tier R9 Fury X is at 8.4, or the NVIDIA GTX 1080 is at 9 teraflops. Good lord. Let me just take a look really quick. Uh, of course, there's a link to another. 
uh, article on Ars Technica for the, what am I looking at? The NVIDIA GTX 1080. And that, just the, gee, just the card itself is $700, $699 for just the video card that can handle nine teraflops. That is, Dude. see, and this is why people do the console gaming. Um, you know, of course, PCs, I mean, this, this discussion has been over for a while, and there's like no point really even going over it. But like PCs, if you're gonna have an high-end PC, it's going to outperform any console, and like that's it. Like there's nothing left to to discuss as far as that front is concerned because you can purchase this high-end hardware. A a, a single video card is a hundred dollars more than the launch price of one of the current-gen consoles. I mean, that's that's an insane amount of money, and if you're going to spend that much money on your video card, how much money are you spending on the rest of the hardware as well? It's going to be freaking huge. Yeah, I guess it depends on what people are going to do with it, right? Like, um, Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I must say, I was amazed, uh, what was this, last week? I to, This is, I think, a, an experience that I'll remember as kind of a pivotal point in technology and being exposed to it for the first time that I, I had to been fortunate enough to experience last week where I was, I was down in New York City. There's this uh, company I'm working on a project with called Human Condition. They do some really incredible work. I, I, uh, could you repeat that for uh, Human Condition. Okay. And they do, uh, they, they do a variety of, of projects. Really, really kind of innovative people down there. I'm very impressed, you know, with uh, the kind of the innovation that, that comes out of the, that team. Uh, well, Anyway, one, one aspect that they focus on is in terms of technology for improving safety. And they've used an Oculus Rift um, for doing some simulations. Okay. So this is just this one example, right? So they um, say you're working in a, a construction, right? And you're maybe you're getting certified to do work on a building that's that's up really, you know, that's 100 stories up in New York City or something like that, right, to do some sort of construction work. Well, you might go through some sort of training having never been up about 100 stories working on something. Mm-hmm. And you go up there for the first time, you freak out, or, and you, or you realize it's just not for you and you want to do something else. Well, ideally, they'd like to kind of put people in that environment before they do it for real, right? And so they took an Oculus Rift with those kind of hand controls, and then they took a steel beam, uh, put it on the floor just a few inches above the ground, and as well as like basically ear, you know, earmuffs or earphones, and it was shocking how real the experience was to be able to walk out on this beam. It looks like you're you're you have to go and perform some sort of operations, and you're hundred. You look down and you see traffic. You see like you really feel like you're you're up there, and you you, you know you hear the wind. And you've got to bend and do some things kind of uncomfortable to try to kind of like perform a couple of different tasks. Okay. And, uh, you know, that I think is just an example of not only like advances in uh, the technology, right, in terms of hardware being faster and everything, but also just really clever uses to being able to take and apply in different ways, not only just for gaming, but also for kind of real life applications. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it makes you wonder where, you know, something like that. People might be spending all this money for for graphics cards for their PCs, but they're also getting this like pretty powerful hardware being put to use in all these really clever ways. Uh, well, there's a lot of things, particularly with uh, VR becoming um, 
more mainstream, or at least it's trying to become more mainstream. Um, and the way that kind of reflects into gaming or relates into gaming is, to me, the gaming community is basically a testing ground for a lot of this new tech. Um, because you look at a lot of just the heads-up display from like your common shooter, like Halo or Destiny or you know Call of Duty or whatever the other uh, gaming, the gaming experience of your choice. All of these games, they work with their own display, as talking about the user interface, to the, excuse me, they all have these different heads-up displays to show an immense amount of information simultaneously in a way that you can still see all the information and absorb it, but it's still out of the way enough so you can see the main functionality of whatever it is that you're doing. So for this Oculus Rift to be, you know, using these training simulations, as you were saying, yeah, I can absolutely see them using this gaming technology or what was originally designed or intended for gaming because it's already got the support of established hardware and you're working with people, presumably, who have experience with just the the user interface of it all and you take that technology and the proven methods and you put that into well a non-gaming environment and it's going to be effective yeah it's like a gaming i think is a great way for getting a lot of that new technology out of the market where you know some a company can come together and build something that's just flat out cool right and then they they know they make something cool and interesting. They're going to have ability to get some sort of sales, get something out there, and then that can kind of get repurposed in other applications down the road. Oh, absolutely! Like, um, God, a while back when the Google Glass was still relatively new, and unfortunately, I do believe that they they canceled that. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's too bad. But um, <laughs> it was ridiculously expensive. But you know, that's that's the way it goes with new technology, I suppose. Once you get like the the prototypes and the initial launch models out there. It's like, well, we need to recoup costs. So $1,500 a pair us dollars. That's good luck getting that to get into mainstream. But uh, I saw this one video um, and it was working with uh, GE and it had a guy wearing a Google glass and he was walking around one of the, uh, the plant floors there. I don't know which, facility it was i don't really think it matters but he's walking around the plant floor and he's got his like job list of things that he needs to do um up in one corner of his display it's like oh i need to go meet with this guy and then it showed like the guy's name that he needs to go talk to with his what i'm assuming is essentially his badge photo uh, for his name badge so i need to go talk to mark or joe or whatever the guy's name was and it actually also made a path on the plant floor which i'm guessing they're i don't know what type of gps well probably wouldn't be gps but some type of tracking system of where he would be on the plant floor and where the approved walkways are on the plant floor and drew like a navigational path for him to go find where this other guy was and this was all done like in real time as he was able to just go along the plant floor and uh he had to do some work on one of the uh, wind turbines, and it, he, he'll go over to the wind turbine, and the image would analyze what he's looking at and would suggest whatever tools he needed for that particular job. Now, of course, this is all done as a promotional video. I don't know exactly how close that was to actual fruition or being usable, but things like that, 
I think, actually have their roots in gaming design and game design because that's those are the people who know where to place certain checklists for to-do lists. They are the people who know like where to uh, align this information and how to, you know, even just writing out the actual word usage um, and the word creation so you can accurately and succinctly say this is what needs to be done without running a full paragraph and taking up uh, usable uh, image space on the uh, on the display. So, yeah. And- so that was cool. You did that last week in New York City? Yeah, and it's like for any of these, I just feel like uh, you know, as the technology matures, it's going to become very ubiquitous over time. You're just going to see it everywhere and you know, ways that you, that might seem like common sense for being applied in the future that right now are people still figuring out what those are going to be. Yeah. So pretty cool. All right. Um, so you had mentioned 3d printing a little bit earlier, and that's actually one of the reasons why I invited you on to this inaugural episode of video game crosstalk. So, uh, 3d printing, uh, what can you tell me about that? Like, what what were your first, um, how do, how should I, what grabbed your attention first about 3D printing? You know, I initially, it's like most things that I feel like when you're when you're new at it, it you're kind of figuring it out as a sense as you go, right? So mm-hmm. it's something that's like, wow, that's pretty incredible that that technology is around. You know, trying to just get get some exposure to it, and then over time, figuring out some pretty interesting applications for it, right? So. Uh, what really grabbed my attention initially was the fact that the cost came way down and that the printers were cheap enough that you could kind of experiment. So it really started as an experiment, just experimenting. Um, I had, was teaching a class a number of years ago. It was a class called uh, Physical Computing, and students get involved with, like, building some. Uh, they write some code. They, they hook up some electronics, and they... You know, they send some things in the environment and try to manipulate the environment, you know, things in the physical world. Well, I figured 3D printing would have an interesting kind of component as part of it. So uh, I got a kit for a few hundred bucks and had students put it together, and that was kind of the beginning of it, right? Was Okay. And from there, it kind of grew over time. So initially, the transition, I feel, is actually quite interesting because it's like people see these little plastic toys being printed, and, the, and there's this big narrative initially of being like, oh, that's interesting. The toy companies are going to have a run for their money, right? Mm-hmm. Which, in my opinion, is a very, such a tiny, tiny little segment of what the potential is, right? Like, yeah, that is very limited view. Very limited, um, right? But very limited people who've never seen what it can the do. technology before, never really thought of it, don't really know. They don't know the, the history of the industrial applications of 3D printing. They don't know. Um, and working with a couple of my colleagues, eventually we got some better printers, and we, we printed a uh, prosthetic hand, right through a awesome through an organization called Enable, right? Okay. Enabling the future. It's a nonprofit organization. Does some really great work, and printed out some of the designs, different pieces of it. Got together, assembled it. Realized that this is something that we could actually do, right? And from there, working together as a team, we're thinking of a couple of things. One, how can we get students involved to make this a really great educational experience? And the second was, how can we actually you know, use these hands to 
get them literally in the, in the hands of people that can use them, right? And right. The, the niche for that and where the enabled network comes in is that uh, kids outgrow the hands very quickly, right? So, like, if you, if you need a prosthetic and you're eight years old, well, pretty soon, if, especially if the costs are very, very prohibitively high, which they tend to be, you know, ten thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars depends on the prosthetic. Wow. You know. Yeah, and who has the money just laying around? And you're going to ask. Well, obviously, like their parents, like, hey, we're so sorry that uh, your child, you know, for whatever reason needs this. Uh, we can hook you up for thirty grand on top of whatever other medical expenses you're incurring right now. Yeah, it can be tough, you know, especially if they break or they, you know, they're going to outgrow them. So. Three printing fifths is a nice niche for that. Uh, okay, for, for being able because the cost is trivial, right? I mean, you, uh, you know, and that's actually something that I had not considered because I've read a few articles regarding this, and just being the tech enthusiast that I am, I'm like, ooh, 3D printing, and uh, the idea of low cost prosthetics, and it's just anything low cost that's functional is uh, of great interest, um, of course. But I actually hadn't considered the the growth process or the growth rate of a child depending on how old they are, you know, especially if they're going to go through a growth spurt at some point or in the near future, because God knows I am not the same size when I was 10 years old. I am uh, over double (laughs) that weight, over triple that weight possibly. So just, you know, growing naturally, that's actually something I had not initially considered of outgrowing your uh, prosthetics when you're in the earlier ages. So that's And there's another great benefit too and and that's that their 3D printing is great for highly customizable parts, right? So yes, absolutely. For doing one-offs. If, if you want to make 100,000 of something, use use injection molding, use a different mm-hmm. technique, right? But if you want to print something that's a real like a, you know, one or two or very small batches, 3D printing is great for that. It's also great for doing kind of certain types of geometries and shapes that are difficult to do by other sorts of manufacturing processes so yeah that's actually something i've mentioned to some friends uh during like other gatherings and whatnot um how 3d printed become this like fantastic manufacturing technique and it's like uh, it's good like you said for the one-offs or something that's highly complex with an irregular shape because it takes a long time um just really quickly how, how long well how long total printing time would it take to print out uh one of these hands well, I'll give you an estimate, but it completely depends on the size of the individual, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You've done everything from like, she's uh, I think like four years old all the way to full-grown. Oh, wow. So you've grown the full gamut. Right? So, you know, a young kid, it could take maybe four hours at the probably the very low end. Okay. And then for like a full-size adult, it, it could take like 30 hours. So it really, yeah. I mean, the, the, the distribution is... I would say probably on average eight would be my guess. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, the low end for a small child would be, like you said, 40 or four hours. And a full-grown adult can be, you know, 30 on up depending on how many pieces or what's involved. So that's over an entire day of continuous manufacturing just for one piece. That is not exactly efficient manufacturing. Yeah, and that's assuming everything works well. And like, oh. Yes, and that's assuming everything works yeah. on the first try. Which pretty much never yeah. happens. <laughs> of course not. All right, so you said um, the project you were working with is Enable Me, which is enabling the future. Uh, it's the Enable 
Yeah, Enable is the name of the nonprofit. If you want to, Enable is the name of the nonprofit. Okay. If you go to enablingthefuture.org, there's okay. tons of info, tons of info. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and, you know, over time, it's like anything. We've got, gotten better and better about, like, about approaching it because there's, there's designs available online. We started getting better about fitting them to clients, being able to adjust the models, being able to customize things. One thing that we've kind of learned as we've dealt with more and more clients is that everybody's so different. Sometimes, people, you know, the, the extent of the disability in terms of, you know, how much of the palm do they have? Do they have any work? Because it's very common for people to have, be missing four fingers but to have a thumb. You know, different types okay. of things. You just have to fit it differently, and, and fitting is really just an important part of the process. Well, as far as – well, let's talk about the design process for a little bit. I would assume you have some type of standardized aspects to the design, like um, as far as standard maybe lengths of the digits of the of the fingers themselves, but then do you uh, customize the portion that actually fits to the client? Is that – Well, we usually scale all the parts kind of in, in unison, so we do okay. take the um, – so you can do it all remotely. Most of the clients tend to be um, out of the geographic area, right? So let's say we're up in Albany, New York. Say we had a, a kid that was in Florida. Well, we would get pictures with uh, some form of frame of reference, like like a ruler, uh, done in okay. a particular way, um, working with the Enable network, you know. And we'd get these photos, and we would basically we'd pull them in the blender, Right. If you use Blender for, okay. for doing like used in gaming, we're kind of using it as a computer design CAD tool, right? Okay. Um, okay. Now, is Blender is that a pay for program or is that one of those open source? Blender is open source. Blender is open yeah. source. Awesome. It's great. It's been around a long time, and so it's really I think it's a um, fantastic tool. And there's tutorials on, online for um, you know, particularly at one point, somebody is. Um, really dedicated member of the Enable Network. We did a Google Hangout, and, and the video is up on YouTube somewhere for going through and kind of getting started with doing these uh, this fitting. And, okay. um, and yeah, you, you pull it in, you, you fit the hands, you basically determine the size of the, uh, the parts, and then you take those, uh, those files and print them out. And, uh, mm. it's, you know, and over time, I mean, the way I look at it is, the software, the creation of these files, you know, the the modeling, the CAD work, that's where the innovation is going to be down the road, right? Because the printers are getting better and better and better. Over time, it's not going to be like, what printer do you necessarily have access to or um, or how do you troubleshoot problems with the 3D printer? It's going to mm-hmm. be like, if you're, the, the analogy I've used before is say, if you're writing an essay, right? The hard work is writing the essay, it shouldn't be printing it out. Right. Right. Okay. And I think that's the same thing with 3D, right? The your the hard work should be making the design of the files, right? You're designing the models. Mm-hmm. And then, well, yeah. Hopefully, things will get standardized or different methods or construction configurations. But like, all right, we can stop trying to reinvent this thing. This is the proper way to feed the spool of. Uh, plastic or whatever you happen to be using. This is the best method for you know handling the the surface play for yeah. So hopefully that'll all get standardized or get close to it anyway. So yeah, it's spend less time troubleshooting the actual machine and spend more time either printing the stuff out or designing the actual parts. Yeah, I, I look at the technology. Three D printing's been around for decades, but it's been done in industrial settings. 
mm-hmm. from my kind of a consumer market level, it's really um, I look at it as still being in an infancy, but there's such a demand for it now. I think the innovation is happening incredibly fast. There's a lot of people tinkering, experimenting, and researching different ways of doing it. You're seeing an explosion of companies in the market, uh, materials, tons of different materials, and I think you know in a short period of time, technology is going to mature, you know, dramatically much more advanced than we're currently seeing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually did a little bit of work with 3D printing back in high school. So that would be back in 1998 or so. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got to do a little bit with that and some of the rapid prototyping type things. Um, and it was pretty wild. I mean, that that was pretty cutting edge stuff back, well, yeah, back then. Yeah, that actually, um, 98, that's really, that's something, yeah. that's rare, really rare. Yeah, our uh, our teachers were uh, pr- pretty awesome in um, getting that technology to us as quickly as they could. And uh, like one company, it's called Zcore, uh, Z C O R P, and they actually use this one setup, which is great for instructional environments. They actually use um, cornstarch as like the building material, and the printer head actually used a glucose solution. So there would be this spreading bar that would spread this cornstarch over a, over this surface, this, uh, this table, it would spread it out. And then the inkjet head would actually come over and spray the cornstarch in whatever that cross section was. And then this table surface would lower like a fraction of an inch. And then the spreading bar, it again would bring over this thin layer of cornstarch and it spread it again or up, spray it again with the with the glucose solution and in the end once that was all done it was completely non-toxic so because it's basically cornstarch and glucose so yeah. um you you, you break it out of this like, bin of cornstarch you dust it off shake out all the excess cornstarch kind of like you know, wipe it down a little bit and put like a wax glaze over it bake it in an oven and you have a uh, just a part that, I mean, yeah, it took a while, but as far as working with the new technology, I mean, it's completely non-toxic. And you didn't have to worry about, you know, a spill in the classroom. You're like, oh, no, it's cornstarch. Relax. Just kind of sweep it up and throw it away. But now, as you mentioned, were you able to, you were able to get a kit for a relatively low amount of money, like a few hundred dollars. I mean, I've gone onto Amazon every now and again just to see what's out there. And yeah, you can get them for like two, three, four hundred dollars for a 3D printing kit. I mean, once it hits the consumer level pricing, that's when things usually take off. Yeah, it really just so. explode and come a long way in just a period of a few years. Like that, we had one of the only, oh, we started with a little printer bot simple. It was a little wooden uh, thing that we put together from a kit. And I mean, even at the same price point now, you can, they're much better. They really are. Um, awesome. Yeah, so um, moving on a little bit more. Uh, I did send you this TED Talk from a few years back, uh, and it is Joe DeSimone, and he has a revolutionary new type of 3D printing that can go from 25 to 100 times faster. Uh, if you remember watching that video, what are your initial thoughts on that? Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. I, I think that this is goes to show that what they're probably doing now in, in certain types of research institutions it's just, you know, so X number of years before it's going to be out there in the consumer market, right? And it's hard to know right. exactly when that's going to be. Uh, I think you're going to see when that starts to happen, 
it can really have transformative effects to society in general. And what I mean by that is to, um, you know, it makes you wonder what's going to happen in terms of this, you know, instead of having things always manufactured on the other side of the world and, and shipped over here. Well, I think certain times that's, that makes sense, right? When you're, when you're doing, um, you know, bulk uniform products, right? But I think it's also going to open up a lot of uh, ability for people to have very highly customizable products and that you're going to be able to purchase. Uh, yeah, and it's going to be done very quickly. So again, going back to what we said earlier, I mean, it just takes forever. I mean, for a single part, it takes over four hours to build, and that's just for one of the smaller versions of those hands. So um, if you guys haven't, if people listen to this podcast have not seen this video, I highly recommend it. It's uh, Joe DeSimone. If you just go into Google and type TED Talk 3D printing, it'll be one of the first um videos that you find or first links that you find and what it does is rather than the traditional 3d printing sense where it lays down material and builds it upward with melted plastic or uh metal being fused together it actually builds it top down from a pool of i guess liquid plastic or for better or for whatever words will work there and it actually uses light, ultraviolet light, to cure the plastic in these different designs. And it uses oxygen to cure the plastic. And, I mean, this video is absolutely amazing. They actually printed out this small, like, bouncy ball with a highly, highly complex interior in a matter of about 10 minutes. Which, on a traditional 3D printer, um, I would guess maybe an hour or so. Uh, for a little handheld bouncy ball of that style of complexity. But additionally, um, there'd be a, a lot of waste involved in a traditional 3D manufacturing process. But even with that amount of waste, that little bit of waste from uh, errant spillage or just you know needing to smooth out some of the edges, that's still a lot less waste than traditional subtractive manufacturing, such as milling it out of a solid piece of stock or something like that. But what really got me, uh, and what I'd like to ask you a little bit about, and I know you're not a medical professor, uh, but one of the things that this new process would be able to do is to use different types of polymers and elastomers, which are essentially just different types of plastics. Um, have you ever run into issues with clients being allergic to a certain type of material or um, any type of allergy situations? Yeah, we haven't run into that. We, we kind of use um, two different types of plastics that are really common, right? That that for mm -hmm. consumer level, um, 3D printing is is really the two kind of standards, right? Uh, PLA, which is derived actually out of uh, basically corn sugar. It's non toxic. It's oh beautiful. It's very it's light, um, but it's a little. It can be brittle. And then there's ABS, which is petroleum product that is much stronger but heavier um, those are kind of two very common consumer um, level um, plastics but there's been an explosion in terms of different types of materials uh, nylon there's flexible materials there's synthetic wood there's different types of synthetic metal the metal printers tend to be extremely expensive still oh, I can only imagine um, but I think the prices are coming down not anywhere near the consumer market level yet but <laughs> yeah they're down to fifty thousand dollars a unit well I think they <laughs> or something or maybe even more I got a quote on one once where somebody I, I think they're still around a half a million 
Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, it shows how much I know. But, uh, yeah, half a million for one of these. Yeah, not exactly consumer level. Yeah, for a few hundred dollars, you get a plastic one, right? For one that's... Yeah. You know, it, it's going to... People are going to come up with all sorts of really great ways of using these things. Um, I, I would say, in terms of from my personal experience, um, where I think that the innovation really needs to happen is is basic reliability, um, even over speed, because I find that like using just even the printers right now are definitely um, require maintenance a lot more than you would kind of hope. And oh, really? Okay. In in my opinion, like it can get very. I'd say that's probably one of the biggest headaches because. You, what you want to do is you want to focus on building new things, right? And if you've got to spend time sometimes to have a part breaks or whatever, it's, that's that's a problem. And I think uh, reliability, you know, to be able to really beat up on the machines and run them all the time and not have them, um, you know, run into kind of issues is something that's really needed at a, at a low cost. And I think we, you know, to a certain extent we still run into that with 2D printing, right? I mean, how often does something jam? Right? But, oh, but yeah. you kind of magnify that 10 times or 20 times. It becomes a problem, right? Because you don't want to spend all your time trying to troubleshoot those things if you want to focus on innovating. And you know, speed will be important as well. But I would like to see uh, just being able to, for instance, you know, if having a bunch of printers available for people to use without having to worry about them constantly having issues. Gotcha. All right. Well, since this is a gaming podcast, or try to get a little bit of gaming in here, John, what kind of gamer are you into? What kind? Well, I'll tell you my all-time favorite. All-time favorites. Here we go. Civilization series. Really? Oh, uh, fanatic with it all the way back. That's your first one uh, till you know Alpha Centauri to the you know I just really played every one of them and kind of obsessed. Who doesn't want to okay. the world, right? Oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's just what you do. Um, yeah, have you looked into Civilization Six? It's got a release date of October 21st this year. You know, you, the old me would have been all over that. I think I've been so distracted. I, I really know nothing about it, to tell you the truth. Ah, <laughs> well, you know what, man? I, I will send you a link. I'll include a link in the show notes uh, when this podcast gets published. But, um, so yeah, Civilization is your... So what, uh, what's your usual strategy when going through a Civilization game, or what have you used in the past? Oh, gee, I, you know, I think the default is to try to just conquer everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you take over the world? Well, you conquer everyone. Thank you, John Madden. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you played. There's actually there's like five different ways to win, right? Okay, all right. No, I haven't played one in a long, very long time. Yeah, because it depends on the one, but there's usually, like, there's Conquest, right, which is the kind of, like, the basic, right? You, you okay. go in and you, you just kill everybody else, right? Then there's the, uh, usually, like, there's a scientific way to win, right, or a cultural way to win. And I guess you really like that aspect of the game is that there's, you know, I tend to like games that are more open-ended, that there's a lot of different paths, um, not really restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That's what's kind of, I think, why I've always really liked the Civilization games, because you, you have a lot of freedom. The game is never repetitive. You can play it again. It's a different mm-hmm. map. You can do a different strategy. You're running different things. Um, 
Yeah, that seems to be a really large game. Like I said, I have not played it in a while, but the Civilization series has been around for a long time. Yeah, I'm trying to remember um, when I first played that. Like, I remember playing it quite young. Um, but, jeez, I don't even know when that came out. That was an awful long time ago. Let me see. Civilization 1 release date. Thank you, Google. September of 91. 91. Well, I... Yeah. Well, it's, I, it's been going for a while. I don't know if I played I must have... I think I probably joined after... I don't know if I was playing it when I was seven. Um, maybe. Okay. Maybe. Well, I mean, maybe or... Oh, jeez, I love it. I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, so take everything uh, with a grain of salt. But uh, according to Wikipedia, I'm looking at one of these gameplay... Uh, images and yeah that looks like what the images would have looked like back in 91 <laughs> with the super grainy um graphics the uh the standard text font on the left hand side uh, on top of well it looks like some type of gray background but it's actually like a combination of light and dark gray so you get the illusion of a color that's in between, if you remember yeah, graphics. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's totally a combination of those two colors and just alternate the two different shades. And that was the again. coolest thing in its day. That was like... It was so awesome. God, I'm looking at this. Micro Pros for the MPS Labs was the developer. I'm sure they don't exist I was anymore. really into Warcraft as well. Like, Warcraft 2, if people remember that game. It was a real-time strategy. You know, it, it's funny about Warcraft because... Basically, in today's day and age, if you mentioned Warcraft, people just basically assume yes. world of yeah. Warcraft. And it's like, no, there was <laughs> three Hill Games uh, that preceded that uh, that MMO. I mean, granted, that MMO was responsible for just like a huge boost in the the MMO as a mm-hmm. genre because everyone played. But people still well, play that game. It still has yeah, plenty Warcraft of people. Was, that one in its own right at the time was like probably the best like real time strategy game for you know its era in my opinion. Oh yeah, um, I remember just you know building up like my research facilities. I can't remember what they were called. Of course, like your blacksmith. I gotta level up my smithy. I gotta uh, level up my aviary. Yeah. Was that? Warcraft 3 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, then all of a sudden, like, crap, I need to build more farms so I can feed my troops. All right, all you idiots go take down this section of the force, and you guys go mine that uh, mine for gold so I can get more get more money to upgrade, you fools. And uh, the voice acting was absolutely beautiful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Job's done. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, I'm just getting a whole bunch of like flashbacks right now. Uh, did you ever play Warcraft Three? So many hours. Oh yeah, so many hours. Did you ever play the third one? You know, briefly. Okay. Like, I played the first two, and if you go back to the first one, because I did that at one point, like many years later, going and playing the original. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's like from when you're getting used to the speeds of playing the games as they like the later ones you go back to the original and how slow it runs right oh, really? just chopping down like okay rate. it's just like chop you know the axe swing just doing like the most basic thing <laughs> but you know you didn't have that comparison back then and it was originally it was it was awesome all yeah. the time well yeah that'd be, first off obviously it's just um you know it's just what they were 
And I'm looking, Micropose, is they, are they still active? Yes, they are. Wow, I'm a jerk. <laughs> for not yeah. Wow, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a huge jerk. Um, but, uh, Gabby, going back to like any of the older games, it's just, yeah, all the action seems really slow. Um, I mean, I've got my Super Nintendo hooked up next to me, and I've got Mario Kart in it right now, but I've also got like uh, Zelda, uh, Link to the Past, and uh, like Final Fantasy 2 in there. And everything was just so much slower back in the day. Um, and, I, and it's just odd now that I think about how everything is so fast. Like everything is Twitch reflexes. Yeah, just wait uh, 10 years to look at what we're doing today. Yeah, right? It's going to be wild. What, what, whatever the future holds, uh, I anxiously await it. I, I was kind of shocked at how I got hooked into Pokemon Go. Uh-oh. Uh, you mentioned it. Now we have to talk about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't sure if we were going to get into it. I wasn't sure, but you mentioned yeah, it. So, yeah, all right. Pokemon yeah. Go, first question, what level are you? Uh, 14. You're 14. Oh, you jerk. I'm only like level 8. You're <laughs> yeah. 9. I got into it late because um, I've got a limited data plan uh, with my phone. Yeah. I no longer have the unlimited data plan. I'm trying to save a few coins here and there. But... Um, I recently got back from vacation in Wisconsin uh, with my wife's family, and uh, my brother-in-law and his girlfriend mentioned that, um, and here's a quick tip for anyone who listened to this, you can save on your data plan if you go into Google Maps onto your phone, select your local region, and there should be a method there where you can download uh, the Google Maps uh, API directly to your phone. So you can store your Google map of your local town or however you know far out you want to go. Save that directly to your phone's internal memory. So that'll reduce the amount of uh, data usage. It, your phone won't be required to constantly go to the Google servers and download your uh, local information. So found out about that, and I was like, oh, well, game on. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you find out the hard way by going way over your plan. That's right, yeah, because that was my one of my knee-jerk reactions was people are going to be walking around with their phone with their data going the entire time. I mean, the phone companies must be loving that with people going way over. Um, I think it was uh, one of my one of my Twitter followers talking to, I think it was Game with Nikki. And uh, she's like, uh, yeah, people are going like quadruple over their data plan. And it's just like, wow, that's, yeah, that's going to be painful. It's addicting. It's addicting. And like, I, you know, it's amazing how much it affects people's behavior on like other games since it's actually getting you out and about and moving around. Right. Which is fantastic. Which yeah, is, I, first off, it's fantastic that you're actually getting out and you're actually doing yeah. something. Um, because as much of an avid gamer as I am, and, uh, if you pay attention to my Facebook feed, you probably see all that fun nonsense. Um, as much as I do love my video games, uh, I do also acknowledge moderation and I do acknowledge the importance of physical activity. And, uh, Speaking of which, my wife and I actually just did a leg day earlier today. So, ow. <laughs> but um, friends don't let friends skip leg day, right? Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Pokemon Go, thats it's amazing how rapidly it just spread everywhere. Yeah, I never heard of it until it was like all over the news. You know, I think some people kind of knew it was coming. And then once I played it once I was hooked and it's particularly like years ago I used to run like doing a lot of like long distance running mm -hmm. and I've kind of slacked off you know maybe the last year or two 
and until Pokemon Go came out. And now I'm running all over the place because I want to go out there and catch things and hit things. <laughs> yeah, have you ever done uh, any geocaching? Are you familiar with I it? I've done in the past, but in some ways there seems to be a lot of similarities, right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so with geocaching, I've been doing that for a few years. I'll do it off and on. It's a lot of fun to do if you're going, if you travel a lot and you go to new locations and you enjoy walking around state parks or just exploring neighborhoods. So for people who don't know what geocaching is, uh, it's been around for, I don't know how many years. It's been around for a while. But, uh, it's been mostly played by people who like, like to visit state parks or the, uh, the outdoorsy type. And basically, there's this website, geocaching.com. Let me just verify that real quick. Because, I mean, I've got the internet in front of me anyway, so let's see. Geocaching. Yes, geocaching.com. G-E-O-C-A-C-H-I-N-G.com. And it's a, it's an outdoor activity where you use your phone's GPS or a GPS device. Yes, these things actually did exist. Uh, GPS device to find coordinates of these different caches or these canisters hidden all over the planet, actually. There's like, I don't know how many million caches uh, stowed around worldwide. And they can range from anything from just a little film canister to a Tupperware container or a uh, an ammo box. And there's just a little log in there or like a little notepad with a pen. And you can just... Sign your name, say like, hey, this is Anthony, I was here on whatever date, and uh, and you just go on your merry way. It's, it's just a fun thing to do outside. It's pretty kid-friendly. So if you want to do something with your kids to get them outside and explore nature a little bit, it's definitely something to look into. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a good amount of similarities between that and Pokemon Go. It's just, you know... Pokemon is Pokemon. Oh. Uh, you, you don't need to do much effort as far as branding or advertising is concerned. Yeah. Just throw the Pokemon I, I name onto it. It's just boom, everywhere. With geocaching, my understanding, sometimes people leave things, like on little things that might be interesting to find. Yeah, it's actually pretty... If you find one of the larger ones, so like a Tupperware container or one of these ammo canisters, um, you can leave basically a trinket. So for a while, I just had this bag of glow-in-the-dark bugs that you would get from the dollar store. So it was like a cricket, a spider, or a beetle. That's just a, this little glow-in-the-dark toy. And if the canister is large enough, you can just leave one of these little trinkets in there. And you can take one of the other trinkets that you found so that, that other people will leave. So, I mean, I've, found, I've actually found a Nintendo pin from like some comic con so I must have gone to and they just like left this little pin in there. Uh I've seen action figures, I've seen like sports cards, um other just like business cards I've seen just kind of thrown in there. Uh yeah, anything that's just a little toy, a little keychain type thing, uh you can leave in these canisters or you can take something if you if you think it's cool or you think it's cute. There's also these things called uh they're geotags and they can be like they're basically like a dog tag with this like kind of barcode beetle on one side and they'll have like a code number and all of these little travel bugs i think they're called will be registered on the website and you can input this this geo bug or whatever it's called onto the website and say yes i found it at this cache location and the idea is 
as you log where people have found these things, you can actually track where this little bug has gone. So, yeah. for instance, I found one. It was just a dog tag with this little code number on it, and it was attached to this, like, ornamental bumblebee type thing. As it turns out, this thing originated in Texas, and it's made its way across the U.S., up the East Coast, into New York. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, you can track where this thing has been. So I took it. I was like, oh, cool. You know, I'll take it and send it on its way. I went to another location You know, the next weekend, dropped it off at a, at a spot. As it turned out, oh, this is actually really awesome. A, um, a pilot decided to do some geocaching. He picked it up, and he brought it over to Europe. Oh, with them wow. so you can actually like track where this thing has been and it just did like this tour around europe that's pretty um, is that, yeah, that's pretty wild that kind of reminds me isn't there there's like a site that's something like where's george or whatever where you can do that with uh dollar bills yeah i i haven't done that one but i'm i know what you're talking about yeah like where's george now or where's george but something like that yeah so so awesome you're a big civilization player uh yeah, just, I more used to be. Anyway, uh, you've got a lot of things going on all at the same time. So you've uh, gaming's had to take a bit of a, a backseat. Yeah, it has. But geez, you wouldn't, you'd have no idea how many hours of that I've played. <laughs> oh yeah, I, uh, I could imagine. I could imagine. <laughs> all right, so we're at about an hour right now. So we're going to get into the final segment because every podcast needs some type of stupid gimmick. So this is going to be mine for now <laughs> until I can think of something better. Uh, the final five questions. These are five questions that range from irrelevant to irreverent. So first question, coffee or tea? Oh, coffee all the way. R- coffee all the way. Too much coffee. Do you drink it black? Do you drink it light and sweet? Black. black. Oh, that's, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. I started drinking black coffee, I don't know how many years ago, uh, basically because the company I was working at, we had this nice table where you could add different types of creamer, different type of sugars, and like cinnamon or something like that to your coffee. But um, I actually just started getting annoyed at all my coworkers because they would sit there and you'd get this group of people chatting away, fixing their coffee, and I'm just sitting there like, I need to get back to work. Well, I think that's part of why I drink it black, too, is because if I really need that cup of coffee, I don't even have, like, the motivation or the energy to put cream in it. I just want, I just want <laughs> Like, I don't care. I just need some caffeine. Just give me the coffee. Thank you. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So second question. Do you do any tabletop gaming? Uh, not much, but I love Settlers of Catan. Oh, yeah? There's a... There's been a lot of different variants of that game. We actually got my sister-in-law a Star Trek variant of that. And I, I mean, 3D printed some parts in like some of the terrain, believe it or not, for that. I, I've been in the, I haven't made the whole set yet, but I want to have a 3D set of the... Uh, the operative word in that sentence is yet. John, I'm counting on you. <laughs> I want to see this happen. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, so next two questions I actually get from an inside source over at UAlbany. A friend of mine in the uh, the advising office kind of gave me the lowdown of what's going on over in your department. So first question, or this will be the third question of this, how many times have you burned your hands touching the 3D models before they've cooled? Oh, geez, probably every time I take something off on a 3D printer. Well, I'm not very patient, and it's not that bad. I mean, the extruders are really, really hot, but... You know, let you know when you touch one, but 
<laughs> I've lost count a long time ago. I lost count a long time ago. All right, so that's that's fantastic. All right, fourth question. Uh, what does your office plan to do for September 19th, a.k.a. Talk Like a Pirate Day? Oh, well, in the, in the past, it's been a big event. Like, we, we get really into it. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, eye patches, hooks, uh, you know, just kind of deck out everything. You know, the pirate booty, uh, like, kind of snack food, and try to get a lot of students involved. Awesome. I think I so, try to make the faculty look like stupid and approachable. <laughs> idea. Oh, I have heard some uh, stories of some three D printed Great Danes with an eye patch. Oh yeah, yeah. We've got that's the Great Dane, the uh, U Albany um, mascot. I've actually got a few of them right here on my desk that I'm looking at. They're all different themes. Valentine's Day one here. What else do I have in front of me? We've got. We've got oh, so you have seasonal Great Danes. Yeah, there's there's a oh, like Dane bots. There's like a, one of these Dane bots for pretty much every holiday you could think of. Oh, that is fabulous. <laughs> All right, so last question of this: How many times a week do you flip off your students using one of the prosthetics? <laughs> Don't lie to me, boy. <laughs> hey, you know though, they, you actually can't articulate a single finger with them. What? Yeah, it's a grip release. It's for picking things up. But trust me, I've seen students do it quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's a hand. I mean, what else would you do with a hand besides flip someone off with it? Yeah, yeah. You know, we did think something in class at one point too. Where we, I had students. They put, they made a glove and they hooked up these flex sensors by the fi- their fingers. So they put it on mm-hmm. the real hand, and the then they had a robotic hand that would mimic their movements. Right. So if you point. Awesome. You pointed the the robotic hand would point. So whatever you did, the robotic hand would follow your movements. And of course, that one, all the students were just flipping off constantly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is great! That is great. All right, end of show plugs. All right, John Muckle, thank you so much for joining me on this little adventure. Hey, my pleasure. It was a good time. All right. Uh, one last time, I am Anthony Rossi. I can be found on Twitter and Xbox Live at HyperSyntex. That's H-Y-P-3-R-S-I-N-T-4-X. You can follow this podcast directly on Twitter at VGXTPod and online at VideoGameCrosstalk.Podbean.com. Please like, rate, and share all of your social media accounts, including iTunes and Google Play. John, do you have any uh, social networking you want to throw out there? You know, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, John Muckle. That's probably the best way. All right, so is that uh, with or without an H? Without an H. It's J-O-N-M-U-C-K-E-L-L. Awesome. All right, thank you so much. All right, thank you so much. All right, peace out, guys. <laughs>